It is good to be with you this morning. I see that the Lord has answered my prayer, the prayer for every weekend. What is my prayer every weekend? Rain. Yeah. Attendance, <laughs> attendance always goes up, though. For whatever reason, you're here. Thank you. Enjoy your rainy barbecues. Uh, I think most of you know how much I love and appreciate this church. I call you my sweetheart church, and I think back over the 30 years, the many, many things that you have done for me, the kindness, the gracious, the generosity that you have shown to me over these more than three decades. I don't know if you know, though, that the greatest gift that you ever gave me was already sitting in the pews in 1987 when I showed up. Her name was Cindy Manley. And uh, this last week we were away celebrating our 30th wedding anniversary. You have, you have been a, a wonderful church home in which to marry, in which to raise our children. A lot of pastors cannot say that, but I can say it without reservation. So thank you for that blessing. And I dare say that that blessing has been returned somewhat because I think Cindy Toon is the finest first lady of a congregation that you could ever have. And I don't say it very much, but I think you're lucky to have her too. Our getaway was wonderful, but it's uh, good to be back home. It's always good to be back home. It's too bad that Jesus couldn't say the same thing. We began a new sermon series uh, this morning called Game Changers. And we're talking about the, the ways that Jesus confronted situations in his life that were very painful. And there's hardly anything that is more painful in life than rejection. Every one of us has gone through it. And there, it is extraordinarily painful. Um, my teenage years were rough. Not at home. I had a, a wonderful home life, a championing uh, family for me. But my high school years were really hard, uh, in part because I had no friends in my high school. And so early on, I decided I was going to do something about it. I threw a party, and I invited all the cool kids that I wanted to like me to come to my party. It was a Friday night, and we decorated the basement, and we filled the place up with food and drink, and I cranked up Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Club band. That was a Beatles classic for you musical illiterates. And then I waited for my friends to come. And I waited. And I waited. Guess how many people showed up for my party? No one. No one showed up. Have you ever thrown a party and had no one come? It was crushing rejection. A few years later, though, I thought things had turned around. A few years later, I got a call from one of the cool kids who was a member of the West Valley High School class reunion, year five. And she said, Mark, we would like for you to emcee our class reunion. I was flabbergasted that I would be invited to do something like that. And of course, I said, yes. And I began to work on my material. And I thought, I finally made it. I'm a late bloomer, but finally they're going to accept me. And then a few days later, I got a call back from the same girl, and she said, "Um, Mark, um, we won't need you to emcee the reunion after all. We've asked Gordon Sparks. 
He's funnier than you are. But we still hope you'll come. I did not come. I never came back. The only reason I can imagine going to a reunion would be to show off my hot young wife and my relatively full head of hair at this point. (laughs) But even that is not going to, to win me back. The fact that you show up here every weekend to hear me talk and you think I'm as funny as Gordon Sparks <laughs> you have no idea what a kindness that is to me I wish Jesus had had the same kind of support from his peeps he had just come back from a, an incredible tour de force in and around Galilee he'd launched with a, a preaching ministry and a healing ministry Powerful miracles, casting out of evil spirits, and the grand finale was the raising up of a 12-year-old girl from the dead. Now you would think that when Jesus returned home, he would be welcomed with a ticker tape parade. Well, let's see. Our text this morning comes from Mark chapter 6, the first verses and following. Let's see how Jesus was received after he returned from Capernaum. Jesus went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded, astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom that he has been given. How are these mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary? The brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. (laughs) And he marveled at their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching And he called the twelve to him and began to send them out two by two. This is the word of the Lord. If you're going to pick a hometown in which to raise up a Messiah, you could hardly pick a less likely place than Nazareth of Galilee. Nazareth was a town of maybe 500 people, maybe And it was known as the Hicksville of Galilee. It was the podunk town. It had never been mentioned in the Old Testament. And in fact, so far as we know, it was never written about in ancient scriptures, in any ancient writings for another 200 years after this. It was a nowheresville. There was nothing remarkable about Nazareth. Nothing for them to be proud of. So you'd think when their hometown boy made good... 
made a name for himself as a great rabbi, that it would be a source of great pride that they would receive him with a triumphant homecoming. Not quite. Jesus came back to Nazareth, and on the first Sabbath after he arrived, he went into the synagogue, probably the synagogue in which he was bar mitzvahed. And he began to teach. And we are told that this was his chance to basically strut his stuff in front of the home crown crowd. This was, he was on his own home turf. This was a home game. And initially the people couldn't help themselves. They were astonished, we are told. Verse 2 says, they were astonished. The word for that is literally knocked out. Jesus knocked them out. He bowled them over with his teaching. But then they caught themselves. Then they realized who it was that they were listening to, and they began to to question. Wait a second. Wait a second, they said. English translations don't do justice to the rudeness of the way they pose these questions. For instance, in the Greek, they refer to Jesus disdainfully as this guy. This guy. Where did this guy get all of this? Where does this wisdom come to this guy? His hometown crowd just could not fathom it. Thousands of people in and around Galilee had flocked to Jesus to hear his teaching and to be touched by the power of his presence and his healings, his miracles. But not the Nazarenes, not his hometown people. Why not? Because he was one of them. He was one of them. They go on to ask, is not this guy the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? He's just one of us, they said. It is sad, really. Their rejection of Jesus is just as much a rejection of themselves. These Galileans, these Nazarenes had such a lousy self-image that they could not believe that God could ever do anything great through any one of them. I wonder how many times we hold back our own people from doing something great for God because we feel the need to keep them in their place. And so we read that they took offense at him. Now I want you to notice the downward progression of the attitude toward Jesus. It starts out with astonishment and then they catch themselves, and they begin to question. And then they decide that they're going to take offense at him. The word for offense is scandalon. Sound familiar? Scandalized. The word scandalon actually means stumbling block. Jesus became a tripping point for them. He scandalized them. They took offense at him. They were astonished at his words... But they were offended at his person. And frankly, it's no different today. Even among Christians. Even among good Sunday, go to church, meeting Christians. Many of us appreciate the teachings of Jesus. We love the Sermon on the Mount. We love the Lord's Prayer. We love the parables like the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. It's not the words of Jesus that offend us. It is his person. It is when you realize that this man who is speaking these powerful words actually calls you to bow your knee before him as Lord. That is when we are offended. Who is this guy, Jesus, that he should tell me what to do? 
Who is this guy, Jesus, that he should tell me how to treat my wife or treat my children? Who is this guy, Jesus, that he should tell me that I must keep my marriage vows? Who is this guy, Jesus, that he would tell me how to spend my money? Butt out, Jesus. Mind your own business. Stick to your cute little teachings and leave me alone. The bottom line for the Nazarenes was they didn't like this new, powerful Jesus. They didn't like him. For 30 years, he lived incognito in their little town. He cared for his mother. He took care of his carpenter's shop, the father's carpenter's shop. He bided his time, the time for which he had been called by God and sent by God. And then that moment came, and he left Nazareth, and he went down to the Jordan, and he was baptized by his cousin John. And we remember how, in that moment, the heavens split open, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him, and he heard the the words, the encouraging blessing of his father that said, You are my beloved, I am so proud of you. Or put a different way, God was saying, Okay, son, go get him. And boy, did he. He was launched on a ministry of powerful preaching, teaching, miracles, exorcisms. All of those 30 years of pent-up potential was finally released, unleashed. So the Jesus who returned to Nazareth was not the Jesus who left Nazareth. And the people didn't like it. They liked the little boy Jesus who, who scampered around the streets. They liked the polite teenage Jesus who made nice chairs for their homes. That Jesus they liked. This Jesus, this new, powerful, different, imposing Jesus, they didn't like at all. And they wanted the old Jesus back. My wife Cindy didn't come to Christ until she was in college years. PLU, believe it or not. She was invited to a Bible study there by some friends. She took the word seriously. She studied the Bible seriously. She decided that it was true. And she offered her life to Christ. She received Jesus as her Savior. So when she went back home, she was a different person. And she tells me about a conversation that she had with a high school friend named Amy. The more they talked, the more confused Amy became. And finally she said, You're different. And it was not a compliment. Amy remembered and liked high school party Cindy. But this was a new Cindy. One who had been met by and changed by Jesus. Amy didn't know what to do with new Cindy. She wasn't even sure she wanted to have anything to do with new Cindy. You may not want to hear this, but you're going to anyhow. If you have a genuine encounter with Jesus... If his spirit really saves you, really fills you, really transforms you, you will be a different person, a noticeably, radically different person. And there will be some from your Nazareth who do not like the new you. They like the old you. But this new you, it makes them comfortable, uncomfortable. And it shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said that this would happen. He said, they hate me, they're going to hate you. John introduces us to Jesus by saying, he came to his own people, and his own people received him not. Like Jesus, you might find yourself rejected if your faith is real. So how do we deal with rejection? 
How did Jesus deal with rejection, whether it is for our faith or for any other reason at all? I want to share some things that I have kind of mined from this passage. First of all, Jesus acknowledged his rejection. After the Nazarenes decided that they were scandalized by him, Jesus speaks these very bold words. He said, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Notice the decreasingly narrow scope. His hometown, his relatives, his own household. Jesus calls out rejection publicly. He calls it out for what it is. He could have dialed it back. He could have downplayed the whole Messiah thing. He could have soft-pedaled the the prophet thing so that he could get back in their good graces. But he refused to deny himself. God had called him. God had empowered him. God had unleashed him upon the world into a new season of life. And to deny that would have been dishonest and unfaithful. Jesus said, I am in fact the prophet and you can receive me or not. Cindy was a different person because of Jesus. She tells me about that conversation that her biggest regret was that she did not immediately acknowledge when Amy said, you're different. She did not immediately say, yes, I'm different because God has changed me. I have given my life to Jesus. I am not high school Cindy anymore. She said, I really felt like I missed an opportunity. And she came to realize that every time she went home, she found herself squeezed back into old structures, old relationships, old identities. And she vowed in that moment that she would become bold when she went home. And boy, has my wife been a bold witness for Christ. And there have been some in Salt Lake who have come to Christ because of that witness. Jesus acknowledged his rejection for what it was. He called it out. He might have wished that things were different. He might have wished that his hometown crowd had welcomed him and had been proud of him, but they didn't, and they weren't. Rejection is a painful reality, but the first step to dealing with it is naming it. To say to yourself and maybe to others, okay, the relationship that I longed for, I do not have. And despite my best efforts, it is possible that I may never be accepted for who I am. So be it. The moment you can say this is the moment that you begin to regain some control of that part of your life. Jesus acknowledges rejection. And then Jesus moved on. Did you see that? He moved on. He traveled to other villages. And he invested in his disciples the people who did want a relationship with him. He could have stayed in Nazareth begging for another chance, chasing after the relationships that he felt were slipping away from him. He could have tried harder to impress his family and impress his friends. He could have tried to behave more like the old Jesus that they preferred. Instead, he moved on. In fact, a few verses later, he's going to teach his disciples, when you go, if they reject you, just knock the dust off your sandals and move on. We have no record that Jesus ever returned to his hometown again. Instead, we find him investing in relationships with those who welcomed him and wanted him. There's nothing more pathetic than watching someone grasp for affection or acceptance, 
or attention or affirmation that has been cruelly withheld from them. It never works. In fact, it usually causes them even greater disdain. Jesus knew that he had to move on from his rejection. But this might be the most important point. Jesus never burned his bridges. He never burned his bridges. Even in this story, when we read the remarkable statement that Jesus could do no mighty work because of their unbelief, still Mark tacks on the fact that, well, he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Yeah, just that. A friend of mine said, you know, that would have been a pretty good day for me. Jesus didn't burn his bridges. 500 Nazarenes, maybe 465 of them, didn't want a thing to do with him. But there were five who did, who wanted him, who needed what he had to offer. And he did not burn those bridges. And then later in Acts chapter 1, we read this very cryptic verse. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Jesus didn't even burn those bridges. He left the door open even for those who hurt him most deeply. His own brothers. There's a book in the Bible called Jude. Do you know what that book was, who that book was written by? The brother of Jesus. You heard his name in the list. Judas, also known as Jude. Do you know the name of the the man who eventually became the leader of the Jerusalem church? His name was James, the brother of Jesus. You heard his name mentioned in that list as well. In fact, James was ultimately beheaded for his faith in Jesus. The one who once found Jesus to be a stumbling block ended his life on the chopping block because Jesus did not burn his bridges. And in the end, perhaps... Some of those who wounded him most deeply returned to him. There's always hope for reconciliation. You never know what God might do if you're willing to move on bravely. If you're willing to allow them to see your back as you walk away, that might cause them pause. There's always hope. I think there's one thing more that caused Jesus to reject rejection. It may be the most important thing. He knew without a doubt that he was the beloved child of his heavenly father. Precious in his eyes. Called to his vocation. Blessed by his spirit. We only hear the audible voice of God the father two times in the book of Mark. And both times we hear God saying the same thing. Speaking to Jesus he says, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved son. You can deal with a lot of rejection if you have those words from God ringing in your ears. You are my beloved child. How did Jesus, how does anyone deal with rejection? In the end, the most important thing that we must remember is that God loves you even when others do not. That God calls you even when others ignore your call. That God welcomes you even when others pretend not to be home. That God wants to party with you even when no one else shows up. You are the precious and treasured child of Almighty God. He thinks you're cool. 
Whatever those losers from your reunion committee might think of you, God thinks you're cool. And that is cool. Let us pray. God, thank you for sending your son to us. Thank you that you were persistent with us, even when we rejected you, even when we put our hand up against you. It didn't stop you. And you sent your son, and you broke down the barriers bit by bit because your son would not let us go. And so here we sit, most of us aware that we are loved by God Almighty. We are the precious possession of our Heavenly Father, bought with the the priceless blood of Jesus. I pray for those who are experiencing rejection right now. Rejection by their spouse that promised they would be with them forever. Rejection by their children who want nothing to do with them. Rejection by their boss who just said, we don't need you here anymore. Rejection by a circle of friends that have tightened the circle and does not include them anymore. These are painful, hard things. Would you remind us that we are loved by you? And would you remind us that Jesus understands exactly what we are experiencing because he was despised and rejected of men. And so we reject rejection. In the name of Jesus, we, we reject rejection. We lift our chins. We lift our eyes. We lift our, our faces. And we look to a future that is different because we know we are beloved of you. That we belong to you and we belong to your people even if we don't know who those might be. Thank you for making a place for us. Thank you for making a home for us. Thank you for welcoming us, Lord Jesus. Amen.